Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guests are Paula Scatalone and Rachel lewis Marlowe, and together they have founded the Embodied Recovery Institute. Rachel Lewis Marlowe is a certified advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy, duly licensed as a licensed professional counsellor and massage and bodywork therapist. She is the co-founder of Embodied Recovery Institute. Rachel has developed somatically integrative programming for residential partial hospitalisation intensive outpatient eating disorder treatment. She has extensive experience as a teacher and presenter, specialising in somatically integrative interventions. She contributed a chapter on the application of sensory motor psychotherapy to eating disorders treatment in the recently published book, Trauma-Informed Approaches to Eating Disorders. Her private practice, Rachel works with trauma, attachment, eating disorders, and dissociative disorders. Paula is a somatic psychotherapist, certified eating disorder specialist, and somatic experiencing practitioner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She has worked in the field of eating disorders for over two decades. Paula served as the Eating Disorder Coordinator at Duke University CAPS for nine years and has taught extensively on the etiology and treatment of eating disorders through workshops, professional trainings and conferences. She has taught embodied movement classes at treatment centres and co-developed the first intensive outpatient program for eating disorders in the US with Dr. Anita Johnston. Paula is the co-developer of the Embodied Recovery Institute and the Embodied Recovery Model, a somatically integrative approach to eating disorder treatment. Paula is passionate about increasing awareness of the effectiveness of somatic modalities in the treatment of disordered eating and hopes to pursue research on the effectiveness of somatic therapy within the eating disorder population in the near future. Welcome, Rachel and Paula. Hello. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And we were obviously just having a little chat beforehand and I'm remembering fondly our, our training back in March and it was right when coronavirus hit the state. So it was all very unusual, the training. We were all doing elbow bumps and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a very different style of training. Did everyone get home okay? And I think so. Yeah. Everyone, everyone got home, and and as far as I know, everybody was safe and healthy. And, yeah, um, but it was it was quite the turning point. It was. It was and, exactly and that weekend, wasn't it? It God, was. That's... Yeah. <laughs> Monday, everything stopped. So it yeah. did. It did. So you're my first um, people that I've had two people on the show. So would you both just say a little bit about yourselves, your own history, if you're willing to share, and what led you to this work? I'll go ahead and start. This is Paula. I started in the field back in the late 80s. I went to school for social work 
and decided I wanted to specialize in working with women's issues. And eating disorders in particular were important to me because of my own recovery and my history of, of recovering from all three, really, eating disorders, bulimia, anorexia, binge eating, because I had a very lengthy disorder. And so I had fortunately at the time was in Hawaii and became friends with Anita Johnston, who wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon. And so that's how I began to pursue and understand eating disorders was under her guidance. So I had always been able to hold eating disorders from the perspective of metaphor. And so from that, I began to understand the um, importance of the body and bringing clients into the body. And much of the field at that time did not really incorporate the body into treatment much. I think we were starting to see yoga and mindfulness being part of treatment, but it wasn't until I left Hawaii and started to study somatic experiencing that I began to understand the role of the body in treatment and the importance of bringing the body into treatment mm. and that we could have a reduction of symptoms, but unless we began to really understand how the body was working for a particular person in reference to their experience of self, having self and their sense of being able to connect to self and to others with ease, that that wasn't going to get resolved just by reducing the symptoms. So that's where somatic experiencing in the field of trauma began to open my eyes to what it meant to feel safe in our bodies, to feel connected to others. And then that's how I met Rachel, which expanded my perspective in terms of body-mind centering and some of the other theories that we use and enhanced more and more my understanding of the body's role in mm. treatment. I'm Rachel. I came from this, the complete opposite direction as Paula, that my, well, a complete opposite, but close. My undergraduate studies started in psychology, but then I transferred schools and, and studied dance and choreography, which was kind of my first language is movement mm. and, and the body. And it was actually endeavor that I started to explore this way that movement and dance is not um, representative, but more expressive of something that is fundamental um, about who we are as human beings. And then I was introduced to body mind centering while I was still um, an undergraduate. It was just a taste. And then after school, I studied massage and therapeutic body work. And I did that for many, many years and kind of got to a place of recognizing that in order to be able to facilitate really sustainable change that people were trying to make, I mean, we would work with the body, they would feel relief, but a lot of times they would, after, you know, a few days, months, experiences, they, their bodies would kind of revert back into these old patterns mm. and that that there was something that was needed to really impact or affect more sustainable foundational change. And that's when I went back to graduate school and was really kind of wanting to understand how do these phenomena of facilitating change that I can experience on a body level, how is that, what's the parallel on a cognitive or emotional level? Mm. And then 
after graduate school, that's when I discovered sensory motor psychotherapy. And for me, one of the gifts of that discipline was that it gave me the language. It gave me the bridges between these different ways in which we organize as a human being. And I was able to, to find phenomenologically how we impact change on all of these different levels. And then realizing that with the field of eating disorders, that I, I came to, to the field of eating disorders because people were interested in, in sensory motor and working with mm. trauma and bringing it to that population. And just realizing that we needed to be able to bring something to this field where people can start to understand how the body communicates and really understand the language that it's speaking that the eating disorders are part of. Yep. It's not that the eating disorder is a separate voice. It's just speaking about something we may not quite understand. A couple of times you've mentioned somatic and sensory motor. So our audience is for people suffering. And so they may mm. not really know what those terms mean. Mm. Would you be able to just dive a little bit deeper into what that actually is or what mm. they are? Sure. I'll start with somatic experiencing. This mm -hmm. is Paula again. So somatic experiencing was developed by Peter Levine. And actually he and Pat started off during the same time okay. with similar, similar theories that they were both looking at. But uh, Peter branched off and really began to study animal behavior and how we as mammals have similar responses that animals have. And these are in, innate responses to how um, well, under threat, mm. how we might respond. And so they involve things like orienting, orienting both to safety and trying to elicit safety in relationship, but also orienting to threat. So animals in the wild, when they enter a novel situation, they, they look around and they assess, is this safe and is this not? And we as humans do the same. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if it's not safe, animals will then go through a progression in their physiology that involves chemicals and responses that help them in instances that are not safe. And these are what we call our fight or flight responses. So orient, and if we determine something's not safe, we move into a fight or flight response. And um, then they also have something called the freeze response under mm -hmm. intense threat. When there is a threat to life, they have a response where they shut down. And these are all ways of protecting themselves. And so Peter Levine studied this process and then he noticed, well, animals in the wild don't have PTSD. And, and so what's happening with those processes for the animals and how can we learn from that? And so from that, he developed a model of trauma treatment where we track the body's responses to threat mm -hmm. and help the body complete threat responses and then thereby discharging some of that physiology that gets stored in the body when we're in active defense. And uh, it's really a model of, around regulation. Um, he was a body worker, and so he understood regulation from that perspective. And so the model is specific to shock trauma, but also incorporates regulation very broadly. How do we support the physiology to move from a place of contraction into more of an ease and flow of expansion and contraction? So 
in that model, we learn how to do that with our clients and how to help our clients do that on their own. Yeah. Thank you. And just talk briefly, this is Rachel, about sensory motor psychotherapy. Mm. Paula mentioned Pat, and she's referring to Pat Ogden, who is the woman who um, developed the model of sensory motor psychotherapy. And, you know, I think that the thing that they both of these disciplines have in common is that they are really looking at how does the body organize and how does that impact the emotions and the cognitions that are available based from this bottom-up processing and that how do we then interface with the body in a way to increase regulation, increase a sense of safety and expand who we can know ourselves to be and who we can be in the world that we that we live in. How can we more effectively interact with it? One of the additional things that sensory motor maybe addresses is that it just has a kind of more of a, a vocabulary for looking at some of the attachment relationships, ways that we accommodate. How are we in relationship? And how's that landing in our body? And what are the ways that we can kind of go from the body up through emotion to cognition and then from cognition and thinking down through emotion and landing it into in the body. Mm. Yes, you mentioned bottom up there. So just for Mm -hmm. our listeners, Mm -hmm. would you just maybe say a little bit more about the, because obviously the other one is top down. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are familiar with that, with like a cognitive behavioral approach where what we're looking at is, you know, how do we shift what we're thinking and see if that can impact how we feel emotionally about something and there how we can behave. And what bottom up is saying is that how our bodies are organized, our posture, our our default movements and our default postures impact Mm. what our emotional states are and what our thoughts are, like what, what feels true to us. So, you know, one way that people can even play with it is that if they tighten their jaw mm. and and scrunch their eyebrows and and kind of look really intensely at something and just hear in their head the words you know what is this mm. you know it's going to sound a certain way and it's going to have a certain kind of urgency to it but if if you kind of relax your eyes and you soften your jaw, and you feel your neck soft, and you can almost move your head around, Mm. and you look at that same object, and you hear the words, what is this in your your head? Mm. It's actually going to sound like a different question. Even as you're saying that, and uh, I can actually feel my my neck relaxing, and Uh yeah, yeah, it's It's just a sort of a simple way for people to experience what the impact of bottom-up processing is. Mm. So, for example, when Paula was discussing trauma, Mm. you know, or when we have, when we are holding fear in our bodies because of an experience we've had that hasn't been completed and we haven't fully metabolized it, that, that structure in our bodies is going to impact our emotional state and mm. our, our, our thought process, the meaning we make of, of our situation and of ourselves. Mm. 
And so your model is uh, embodied recovery and you use this to work with people with trauma, disordered eating and other food, weight and body image concerns. So what actually is embodied recovery? This is Rachel. Do you want me, do you want me to go for it, Paula? Well, you, you can jump in. I'll add. Okay, I'll start. So I think what embodied recovery is, is in its most general terms, it is an approach to assessing what's going on when someone has disordered eating or an eating disorder that is really looking at the role of the body. It's a bottom up Mm. somatically oriented, right? So we're really focusing on the importance of the body's language. It is a trauma informed model. So Mm. we are understanding the impact that trauma has had on the body you know, experiences of danger and fear. And it's also very attachment oriented because what we understand physiologically is that the physiology and the nervous system structures that are in play with our ability to connect with others and feel safe in the world are the same structures that impact our capacity to digest food. Just in case someone's listening for the first time, what do you mean by attachment? Our attachment system is that part of our of our nervous system and our our belief system that tells us about our relationship with the world outside of ourselves. Mm. And that has to do with certainly our relationship with human beings. Yep. It is established through our experience with primary caregivers, they help to instill the neurological structures of the ventral vagal system, which is is the part of our nervous system that helps regulate the way we take in information through our senses, what we know about the world around us and how connected we feel to it. Paula, what would you add to that? Attachment system is part of our survival system. We have to attach to survive, mm. um, just yeah. the defense system. But we don't hear a lot about attachment um, system in that role until lately, um, so polyvagal theory. Um, so I think of it as a system of survival that we as mammals need to connect. And so it's all those things that influence connection. And so we, as Rachel mentioned, when she talks about the ventral vagal system, we understand now the structures that set up that ability to connect to Mm -hmm. others. And we understand what happens when those structures are not available. That's because of something that happened with our attachment figure or because of trauma or because of sensory processing. Um, And that's why we focus in our training on those three things. Yeah. Um, we do not um, robust attachment system. We will not be able to effectively eat and digest mm-hmm. ease and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll end up with gut mm-hmm. issues, whether that's constipation, whether that's IBS, whether that's an eating disorder. Yeah. And, uh, and we're going to come uh, to it a bit later on, we're going to be talking yeah. about the window of tolerance and regulation and dysregulation yeah. that all sort of um, yeah. my perspective of working with attachment. I'm, I'm actually a mother through foster care, so attachment has been my whole life for the last, <laughs> well, my whole life, Absolutely. but specifically the last 10 years. But yes, it's it's all yeah. around the, the way that the primary caregiver is able to help regulate the the child as well, isn't it? So other thing that I would just want to add about about like what is embodied recovery there's Mm. is one of the big differences 
for the way we look at things is that a lot of traditional eating disorder treatment as holds this belief that people's behaviors or thoughts are rooted in the attitude someone has about their body mm. or this belief that they have yeah. about their body. Yeah. And we are kind of taking that and flipping it 180 degrees and mm. saying that actually eating disorders are not a commentary on the body. It's actually the body's commentary on life, Absolutely. on survival, yeah. on, on relationship, on sensory processing. Mm. And so what that does is it really shifts where we start in treatment or in recovery, that it's, it's starting with how do we listen to the body? How do we start to understand the language that the body speaks and um, stop trying to get it to do something different before we've understood mm. what it's doing? Yeah, that's really important. It's, um, I know you, you write too that you're expanding the definition beyond symptom reduction. Would you say a little bit more about that? So often in treatment, myself included, when we think, oh, you know, I've, I've eliminated my symptoms, so I'm recovered. And although that is important indeed, I think that we need to expand beyond that and really think about embodiment because mm -hmm. we can reduce the symptoms, but we can still have deficits in our attachment system. We can reduce the symptoms, but we can still have a trauma physiology running through our body. And this is why we see clients that still have anxiety. They had the anxiety before the eating disorder, they had the anxiety during, and they had the anxiety after. And so <laughs> it's like, hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. So I started to get curious about that anxiety when I started somatic experiencing and said, well, what is that? And what I discovered was it was about regulation. So when we talk about um, the symptoms, reducing symptoms and moving beyond, what we hope to do with our model is to help clients fully be able to regulate mm -hmm. through embodiment of those symptoms. Paula, would you just say a little bit more about what embodiment actually is? A lot of times, embodiment is one of those things that people, you know, it's kind of hard for people to define, but it's like you know it when you feel it or you know it when you see it. But we've kind of come up with a working definition, which is that embodiment is, it's this intersection of, of, of our consciousness and our physical form. It is our ability to be aware of our bodies, but also to be aware through our bodies. And that the more that of that intersection, the more we are aware of, and the more of our bodies that we can be aware from, and we can experience the world through, um, the more embodied we are. So on another level, what that means is that it's sort of this simultaneous Act, um, activity in what we call our far senses, mm -hmm. the, the, our five basic senses that take in the world around us, smell, sight, uh, taste, touch, and hearing, right? They tell mm -hmm. us about the world outside. But it's also an increased ability of registering information from our near senses that tell us about our internal world. So that when I'm reaching forward, maybe to shake someone's hand 
my whole arm is involved and I can take in the feel of their hand, which we used to do after, before COVID. We don't do this anymore, so this <laughs> may be a bad example, but, but I'm also aware of my whole hand. I can see things and I can be aware of what I'm seeing, but I can also be aware of the eyes that are seeing it. Yeah. And that's, that that's a way of increasing our embodiment. One of the things that, that can happen with eating disorders is that there is not an awareness of mm. our body. And in part, that's because we dismiss mm. the way our bodies are aware of the world around us. You know, and if they're, if they're tight, if they're scared, if they're um, over like anxious, it's like there our bodies are doing all of these things to respond to the world. Mm. And if we can't dialogue, we can't be aware of it. And then we can't honor how it's responding. Mm. One of the things we talk about in our training is when you're embodied, what you might feel. Mm-hmm. So you would feel some ease awake and alert, but calm as well. So alert, but calm. Um, You would maybe have a sense of being able to regulate your temperature, your appetite, your physiology in general, your emotions. Um, You'd also be able to reach out to utilize relationship when you feel dysregulation, um, as well as utilize and be able to think and have perspective of coping tools in a particular moment. Mm-hmm. So embodiment has a, a lot of benefits and is a state, is a state of being yeah. that yeah. we're working to support clients and practitioners and being able to define it and help know when their clients are in that window of embodiment. That's a really good statement there. It's a state of being because if we think about people with disordered eating or even just sort of chronic dieting, whatever else, there's a lot of doing and a lot of being very busy and uh, not a lot of being more in the mind, I think, a lot of the time than in the body. Yeah. So you also talk about the body as a resource. Can you say more about that? We like to bring the body along in the recovery process and see it as an ally. Mm-hmm. Something that if we get really curious, Rachel and I both began to follow occupational therapists and understand how they utilize the body to support regulation in children. And what we found is there's a lot of wonderful things that we can do to enhance the body, enhance some of those senses like proprioception and vestibular Um, the tactile system, the auditory system, and resource through the body. So the body is a resource in recovery. One of the things that we recognize is that there are many different ways to nourish the body and that um, food is one of those ways. But sometimes in order for the body to be robust enough to go through the process of breaking down food. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into, you need a fairly robust system to actually be able to eat Mm -hmm. and to eat in in, in a way that doesn't, that's not dissociated because the system can get really overwhelmed. And that what we need to be able to do is to resource the body in many different ways so that it can take advantage of the resource of food. 
And that sometimes what that means is we need to resource the body through touch, through smell, you know, using any one of these other senses, because everything is energy, right? Food is energy, light is energy, sound is energy, touch is energy, energy is energy. And we want to give the body a variety of different energetic inputs that are going to resource it so that then it can actually be a resource in the recovery process itself. It's really healing the split between um, mind and body, isn't it? As I'm hearing you talking, it's you know, if we think about traditional sort of, again, coming back to very mind identified and, and it's amazing really that we've got all these years into eating disorder recovery and we're only just bringing the body into it. Well, I think that it, it speaks to sort of the body phobic culture we live in yeah, and that somehow we can, you know, the whole idea of mind over matter yeah. rather than mind collaborating with matter. Yeah, that's a good way. And it really being a partnership. I think mm. that's what we're shifting or we're hoping yeah, to shift. Absolutely. So what, what are the core principles of embodied recovery? So we have basically four principles. The first one is that we view it, traditionally it's viewed as a biopsychosocial disorder where you know they're, uh-huh. they're aware of all of those four uh, those three components. And, and what we are doing is expanding the body part in wanting to, you know, be able to talk m- more than just the biology of it or the gene- you know, potential genetics, but looking at epigenetics, looking at birth history, looking at posture and movement and, you know, sensory processing, all of these different somatic, mm-hmm. somatic meaning body impacts. The second is that recovery is about embodiment not just symptom reduction mm. and, you know we kind of talked about it before yeah. then the other is that this is about the body speaking not us speaking about yeah. the body and that we have to resource the body in order for it to be a resource it's not the enemy we have to stop shooting the messenger yeah um, there's something um you mentioned there about genetics and this is a bit of a touchy mm-hmm. subject with some groups in the eating disorder field, but I guess there are models out there that are saying that eating disorders are just genetic diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would be your take on that? My understanding, and I certainly want to invite Paula to jump in as well, but my understanding is that what research is showing is that it's not like there's one genetic you know, marker or one gene that says you're going to have an eating disorder, but that there may be a genetic constellation that mm-hmm. predisposes a nervous system to being highly sensitive or more easily dysregulated. So we can look at that, but there's a whole lot that goes into the expression of genes, the environment in which someone develops starting at conception mm. um, impacts the way in which, you know, undifferentiated tissue differentiates yep. and what genes get expressed. So yes, there can be constitutions that are more susceptible to this level of dysregulation, mm. but it's, it's, not, not, it's not the whole story. Absolutely not. And my understanding is that, research is sort of supporting that. But Paula, you may have other... I tend to view things through the lens of the nervous system. So when Mm. I'm hearing research about 
anxiety, eating disorders, depression, I think, okay, that's dysregulation, right? So we have dysregulation in the family being passed through the DNA, and we're looking at trauma and how trauma is passed through the DNA. And then we're looking at temperament and parents' temperament and how that supports regulation or doesn't support regulation. So it's really much of the, th- the things that Rachel and I are talking about mm. that explain why we have the genetic predisposition. And so I think that, you know, the scientists view it through that lens and mm. that's fine. And we're just explaining things in a different way. Yeah. I think it's important to know though, because I think there's a lot of treatment programs for um, especially young people in treatment where this is kind of becoming the primary model, especially over here in Australia. Well, actually, at the eating disorder conference I went to in Sydney a few years ago, there was not one presentation on trauma. Uh, It's Mm. still very much, you know, mind sort of cognitive behaviourals or family-based therapy, those kind of therapies. So it's important that I get your take on that (laughs) for our (laughs) listeners here because I think what's happening is people are coming out of treatment feeling really unseen, especially when there's not a trauma perspective it's, it's just missing Absolutely. a massive chunk like the whole chunk for me so right, right. yeah I don't know if this is an appropriate res- response but I know that you know we see this here as well that even when treatment is successful in changing somebody's you know eating behaviors mm. and which has an impact on the physical container right their body size and shape mm. that we may deem as being in a healthy range of you know, whatever body mass index and ideal body weight or whatever, if we haven't helped somebody embody that body, what we're asking them to do is to override the amount of energy and determination it takes to override what your body is telling you and just kind of keep on. I mean, it's exhausting. And that's one it reason is. why there's so much relapse. Absolutely. It's not that what they're doing is wrong. It's just incomplete. And so this sort of leads me into our next uh, sort of question. And so one of the first things that you teach on your training is around the window of tolerance. And you've spoken a lot already about regulation, and dysregulation. Can you please share more about these concepts? So Dan Siegel speaks about the window of tolerance in terms of us having three zones. We have an optimal zone, we have a zone of hyperarousal, and we have a zone of hypoarousal. And in that optimal zone, that's similar to what we described when we talked about embodiment. We have capacity to regulate our temperature, our affect, to reach out for support, to utilize our own coping tools, and to eat and digest with ease. Mm. And then we have the higher zone, which is hyperarousal. This is where we have more of our fight-flight type of energy. We have anxiety, panic, uh, racing heart, rapid thoughts, perseveration. Extreme cases, you will have panic attacks, PTSD, uh, rage. And then hypoarousal is on the bottom, underneath the window. And this is more characterized by states of numbness, dissociation, slowed speech, not being able to gather information, some concentration difficulties, depression, things like that. And so when we have a very wide window, we can kind of move up and down in the window and process emotions, having some intensity to them, but sort of coming back down in. We don't get stuck. We don't get stuck on the up 
or stuck mm. on the down. We just kind of move and glide depending, you know, cause life happens, right. That is mm. going to push us out of the window. So that's Dan Siegel's model. And then the trauma models kind of fold on top of that, Mm -hmm. where we start to look at what it means to be stuck in one of these places, either hypo or hyper outside of the window. Yeah. What does that look like being stuck? Yeah. Being stuck. Well, that's where, um, as I mentioned, those defensive responses, when we Mm. were speaking earlier, the defensive, the startle response or defensive orienting, right? So these are your clients who are still are trying to complete those responses. So they're going to have many of those same reactions. They're going to sit on the edge of their seat. They're going Mm. to be perseverating about the food. They're going to be ready to run out the door. That's your flight energy or be tense and ready for a fight at any moment, right? That's your fight energy. Mm. And then on the other end, your clients that are more lethargic or perhaps even just look very calm, um, calm, but numb really, or clients that do feel like they dissociate, that they're just not there, uh, wanting to sleep a lot or feeling just kind of fuzzy and things are not very crisp and clear. So Mm. those are your more extreme states. The one on the bottom being um, a very severe form of shutdown, simulation of a death state. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, um, so we're sort of talking about anxiety at the top and depression Mm -hmm. at the bottom. At the bottom, Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can I add one thing to that? Sure. When you talk about like, you know, what, what is characteristic of someone who's shut down or stuck rather. Mm. And I think that, that one of the things is not just what is there, but also what's missing. And that what is missing is this sense that I can connect with my world, Mm. that the world holds enough space for me to be a part of it. And a lot of times people talk about, you know, I'm afraid to take up space, right? And there's this sense of it's like either it's me or you. And they don't want to have to make that that choice. It's like if they choose themselves, then they lose the other. Mm. And that's what sets up, you know, that I've got to be above or below the window. Like there's not enough room here for both of us. And so part of what's missing is a spaciousness and helping people find that spaciousness, not just a defense of their right to exist, but their capacity Mm. to exist. You know, as you're talking, it just evokes so much sadness for me. Mm. Really, either of these states are a really sad place to be. But I guess people are going to be listening and thinking, hey, hang on a minute, I actually go into both of those places. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that, that's, would you say more about that? Is that can that be typical or is that? Sure. Yes. It's very typical to run both of them Mm. um, primarily either the high freeze or we're very much in a state of doing and intensity, Mm -hmm. um, but not uh, and feeling more anxiety rather than the depression. And then you can fluctuate down the next day into the more depression or Mm -hmm. someone who is, you know, more on that low, t- that side, the dorsal tone. And just, as I said, these are your clients that might be very calm. Mm-hmm. And, but then they still talk about anxiety. They can feel this little motor mm-hmm. running underneath the calmness. Mm-hmm. And so that's and also think, an interesting mix. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the reason 
that it happens, right? That the, it's not that people are bouncing from one thing to another. It's that that both of those things, the high activation and the really low activation are actually two expressions of the same thing. And that's when we talk about what's missing. Yeah. It's like when the safety is missing, I'm going to express the fear in either an extreme of too much activation or not enough activation because our systems go into activation and to into deactivation just when we breathe you know when we inhale there's a increase in the nervous system's response it's more sympathetic and when we exhale it's more parasympathetic we have to have these fluctuations of activation but if we don't have enough safety when we get active, when the activation goes up or the arousal goes up, we're going to get hyper aroused. And when that arousal goes down, we're going to get hypo aroused because there's something missing. Mm. We're talking about eating disorders, but you know, when I think about uh, disordered eating, we're even starting with diet, you know, chronic dieting, yo-yo dieting, all those kind of things. So how are eating disorder behaviors, how do they fit into this? What's the purpose of the symptom, I guess, when it comes to window, window of tolerance and regulation? Sometimes the, the symptoms are telling us that the client or the person is trying to get back into the window. And this just happens to be how they're choosing, mm. right? They're, just, they're using it just like we would use anything else. We would use shopping. We might use drinking. We might use video yep. gaming, you know, to try to come into a window. Now, the the truth is, there. If there's no window, there's no window. So that's what happens: is there's this attempt to come in, but because the window hasn't expanded, then the next morning they pop out again. So that's one thing that's happening, and the other is that very thing I just mentioned, which is mm-hmm. that the window's not big, yeah. right? And so when the window's not big, you are going to float and live just outside of it, mm-hmm. and you're going to exhibit things that look very much like defensive accommodations when they are really expressions of a deficit in the attachment system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when Paula says too, that we choose this, it's, it's not like it's actually a conscious choice. We can have what we might call on a, from a sensory processing perspective, sensory seeking behaviors and sensory avoiding behaviors. Okay. And we do these things in order to get that that input that's going to increase our sense of regulation or distract us enough from the dysregulation, right? Mm-hmm. And so in terms of eating disorder behaviors, there are behaviors we're going to do that are going to be sensory seeking behaviors, like mm-hmm. looking for crunchy foods, because that gives my, my jaw and um, yeah. the input in, and it gives me proprioceptive input. And that's what I need in order to, to kind of calm my nervous system. I don't know that that's what I'm doing. I'm just sort of like following this impulse and this is what seems to satisfy it, right? Or I may be having a sensory avoidant behavior, like let's say restricting, right? Because my system is so frozen. I can kind of not notice it most of the day because I don't actually need to use it. But when I have to eat, I, have, I feel my gut. And that's really painful because everything mm-hmm. is, is 
you know, is in a defensive orientation because, you know, when I'm running from a bear, I don't need to eat. You know, my yeah. gut shuts down. Yeah. Well, and that's fine until I have to eat something. And if it hurts and it's an uncomfortable sensation, I'm just going to avoid it. And, and it happens so quickly and so subcortically that we don't realize that that's what's driving us. We just kind of land on the on that place of when I look at food, everything in my body tells me no. Mm. And it's like, I feel like I have to not do that. And so when, when you say that, and if we think about, uh, I guess, a lot of parents or even oneself trying to recover on your own saying, just eat, it, it's so much more <laughs> complex than that, isn't it? Oh, it's so much more complex than that. <laughs> Absolutely. Know. It's it's a whole other level. So that that kind of brings us into how does someone begin to heal from these concerns from that, you know, from your perspective, where do they start? For me, this is Rachel speaking. I think one of the first things we do is we cultivate an attitude of curiosity and of compassionate curiosity. And we learn that the body speaks through three main languages through our sensory, our five sense perception, our internal sensation, and our movement, our impulses and our movement preferences. And we start to cultivate a curiosity about how is the body speaking? And when in the cycle of engaging with food, which starts with, am I getting a hunger cue? Am I getting a fullness cue? Do I know what I want? Like, is there clarity on that? Mm. Or... I know what I want, but I have to actually do something to get it, you know, or I can do that, but I can't actually take it in or I can take it in, but I don't know what it feels like to stop and do it well enough. You know, like we have to get curious as to when in that whole cycle does the system seem to lock down and how is my body communicating that to me and then start to go, okay, well, what's, What's going on? How do I listen to my body? What does my body, how is it trying to say no? How is it trying to say yes, but it doesn't feel like it's okay to say yes? And to start to get curious. I'm just thinking when you, as you say, starting to listen to your body, and I'm thinking about when I was full on in my eating disorder, that can be really scary for people. Absolutely. I feel terrified back in my, it's like, why would I want to do that? (laughs) Right. Well, and you know, I love that you're saying that because some of the times when I hear people say that, and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of fear there, huh? You know, that it's not just that we're afraid of listening to our bodies, but it might be that our bodies are holding a lot of fear. So as soon as we start to listen, what we hear is fear, Mm, right? And so we go, oh, wow. And helping people take that journey accompanied. So much of what happens is that people set up these ways of, of managing and navigating life when they don't have a a regulated other to be there navigating it with them. Mm. And, you know, and this is what they've come up with, you know, this is what they've done to do the best they could with what Mm. they had Mm. and to be able to stay in relationship with what's available. And so if we can say, yeah, how about we stay together with how your body's holding that fear? 
so you don't have to be afraid and alone, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's where we start. Yeah. And I think, uh, Paula, I emailed you or maybe you responded to a message in a Facebook group for me around many treatment centres aren't really incorporating this approach uh, yet. I mean, this is when you're going to be feeling the most terrified because people are being sort of force fed sometimes and they're often just left afterwards on their own with no kind of uh, regulating other. They're just all left to just sit what could help someone who is perhaps in a treatment center or even at home in early recovery and they're, they're they're sort of you know dealing with these issues what is there something they can do or how do they be with that if there is no other co-regulating other there sure so wonderful things about working somatically and utilizing the body as a resource is we can simulate or light up our body's experience of having an other person, mm -hmm. right? Quote unquote, um, when we, by bringing someone into relationship with something else that's an other, something's outside of them, be it the couch, be it the floor, be it nature. Um, how do we provide clients with options for practicing regulating with another um, with an inanimate object, right? Or with nature, with the earth. So all these things are accessible in situations where there isn't a person. And sometimes nature, mm -hmm. father sky, mother earth are actually more helpful than than the family <laughs> and mm -hmm. for some people, right? And so and those are readily available right? So when we can start to have clients think about, I'm out of relationship, I'm out of relationship with myself and I'm out of relationship with other. Yeah. And so to improve my regulation, my sense of safety, to enhance that, what can I start to come into relationship with? What's mm -hmm. going to be tolerable? And then we have somatic ways of doing that, be it a weighted blanket, be it a warm rice pack on the kidneys, be it putting your sand, your feet in sand or in warm water or different meditation or visualization exercises that Rachel and I do with clients. So we can create a sense of safety in the body with things when people are not safe. And I do, as Rachel was talking about that previous question, for me, it always comes down to safety or danger. So in order to eat, I need to feel safe. So I won't spend a lot of time listening and navigating all the eating disorder thoughts because those are just a way for the brain trying to explain what's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So I would rather say, what do you need to feel safe? And where do you feel safe? And what helps you to feel safe? Mm -hmm. But when I use the word safe, clients will say, well, I feel safe, right? So yeah, safety yeah, yeah. is not a concept, it's an experience. Yeah. And so we can provide clients with the experience of safety in the moment. And that will begin to support regulation. And once they start to feel regulation, once they start to feel their system doing something different, then the clients begin to soften into, oh, maybe this is not about the thought. 
else. Maybe this is about something else. I want to just add one thing to what Paula said is that a lot of times people will, will describe feeling safe and what they're actually feeling more accurately is protected. Yeah. And that there's this confusion that um, safety is the absence of danger. And safety, we think about it, is not the absence of something that's dangerous. That's being protected. Protected mm. is what keeps danger away from you. But safety is the presence of something that is resonant and supportive that I can connect to. So it's not enough just to be protected. We have to help people actually feel safe. Yeah, and that's, you know, when we think about the history of a lot of these people, their history has been very, very unsafe. So this is probably quite a a big step, I think, isn't it? So one of the things that I asked you about also was how does therapy come into this? So in terms of helping clients feel safe, Well, I think there's ways that therapy can help people feel safe, but I think there's ways that if, if approached not so well, it can actually not feeling safe. And that the important piece is about having a partner in the process and that in the moment, you know, being able to land with somebody who has the ability to still hear you judgment and help you bring yourself relationship with yourself. Um, I think it can happen through conversation and you being able to voice to what your, your, your experiences have been things that you may have been able to say or have heard, but sometimes not in what's said, but in, just how someone breathes with you and ignite some when you, you are holding your breath mm-hmm. as you're talking about something and being able to say, wow, yeah, it seems like this is a really hard to talk about. What if we both just put our hands up on our and take a deep breath? You know, we've got time. It's okay for you to take your time. It's okay. It seems like you're really worried about getting it all out before you have to leave. Well, it's okay. We've got time. We can take it slow. For other people, slowing down in and of itself is really dangerous. It feels really scary. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but I think it's, it's in that experience of the safe other and making it explicit and saying, oh, wow, it's really, there's someone really listening. And I think that's really important because a lot of these people, especially people with eating disorders, haven't really been seen or heard or they've been missed in some way. So to be able to slow down and to really allow the space for them to be however it is that they need to be, I just think is so important. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why it's so important to not just missing on thinking differently. Sometimes people can't self-regulate. Sometimes they can't think clearly enough. What they need is an experience of 
somebody helping them regulate and then bringing attention to what happens in the body. There's that co-regulation path. You actually just cut out when you said that. So I'm thinking that you said CBT then. Was that? I said DBT. Oh, DBT. Okay. But CBT. Same thing. Yeah. And what we know is that people, especially if they're dissociating or, you know, in one of these sort of states that you were talking about earlier with the window of tolerance outside of the window, it's impossible to think straight when you're in in one of these places. Absolutely. Yeah. I think people have got a lot to take away. And what I might do is get you to send me through the resources that people can use at home and I'll put them in the show notes. I think Paula, you mentioned calming blankets and and things like that. So that'll all go there. But I'd love for you to talk about your training because I know we have lots of professionals listening in. Would you share about the training? And I believe you have a different format So we, uh, since COVID started, have decided to put our level one training, which was a three-day training. This is the one that you had attended Mm -hmm. this year. That will be online in the fall and is something you can, providers can listen to on demand. And then our level two training will be two five-day modules that will be spaced out several months apart. And we will start those up again as soon as it is safe Mm. to do so. So they are on hold for the moment. And we are in the process of developing our level three training. So those are the two options at this point. Yeah, I think this was just the first morning that we've discussed here. So obviously, I've done the training. It was so rich and juicy and just really forward thinking. And I just loved it. But what else can people expect to get in the training, I guess? What what other sort of things do you touch on? Well, one of the things that we haven't really talked about is we really talk about sensory processing mm-hmm. and give a lot more explanation to what that means, what sensory processing disorders are. Mm-hmm. We talk about, I kind of mentioned it, this idea of the action cycle and looking at eating as, a, as a, um, an action. Oh, I love all that. Of the stages just of that. Yeah. And because we, when we start to look at these sort of these phenomenal, logical ways of organizing our human existence, we can see that what's impacting our relationship with is sort of the same dynamic that's impacting our relationship with, you know, with work or with people or, yeah. you know, other things. And so we try to get really kind of what's at the center of the wheel, you know, yeah. we can then follow a lot of the spokes out. So we do that. We talk a lot about attachment styles um, or character strategies um, yeah. that develop and that contribute to or are characteristic of different limitations of the action cycle. Women listening today are going to get so much out of this. It's a really, really different way of uh, viewing these concerns. And exactly like you're saying, you know, how we do relationships is how we do food and people are going to get so much out of this. So do you work with individual, can people see you for therapy over there or are you not really, are you more working with therapists these days or... Both of us are starting to work more with therapists themselves mm-hmm. and doing a lot of supervising, a lot of consulting. And, yeah. uh, and then in the process of talking to a treatment center about including our model. Great. 
you'll need to find a therapist who is trained with Paula and Rachel. So, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, do you have a list on your uh, website of therapists who are trained in your model? Or We're actually working on that. You know, we only have a limited number of folks who've gone through the whole level two training at this point. Okay, um, okay. People who've done the introduction model. And so we are working on getting a therapist directory set up and we're kind of revamping that. So hopefully that'll be out by the end of the year. But I think one of the things that we've kind of recognized, we can get more bang for our buck if we're working with, if we're training therapists and we can get this out to a wider area. Exactly. And, and that, you know, so if someone is working with a therapist and that therapist is open to consulting or something like that, we're, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's better for us to, to support clients that way yeah, through their yeah. treatment team. Yeah. Well, therapists are definitely listening anyway. So will you tell people how they can find you? Sure. We have a website called org, And on that website, we'll have a list of our upcoming trainings and our online level one will be available through that website in the fall. And we also have a Facebook group that people can follow. It's called Embodied Recovery Institute on Facebook. Great. And just for Southern Hemisphere, that's, they'll be out soon in the spring. I think that's about it. Is there anything else you would like to share or do you feel like you've completed your cycle? <laughs> I would just like to say thank you. And actually, I love that you put it in, in the relation, terms of the cycle, because I think the last stage of the cycle is one that we sometimes rush through, which is to be able to express our gratitude and then let go. Aww. And so I want to say thank you so much to you for inviting us to come and talk to to you, but also, you know, for your courage to come all the way across like the big pond (laughs) and come and, you know, study with us and take it back with you too. Yeah. It's such important work. Thank you so much. And I just wish borders were open because, you know, I think Paula and I've have talked in supervision around, um, you know, perhaps you bringing the training out here one day, but we're very, very strict over here and we're not letting anyone in. (laughs) (laughs) We're keeping our fingers crossed that eventually we'll be able to come back over there. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise I will be coming, you know, as soon as I can for the next level. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Paula, as well. Thank you, Jody. I've enjoyed, as I always do, talking to you and, and going over the material and the concepts and I love your enthusiasm and I'm so excited for this to be shared over on the other side of the world. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming. This is episode 16. You can find the show notes at the soulcenter.online forward slash soul session 16 embodied recovery. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the soul sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65 page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.